Hello and welcome to another edition of the One Hood Power Hour. I'm one of your hosts, Miracle Jones. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. Today we have a great program to talk to you about ways communities are responding to state action and state violence through mutual aid, through grassroots organizing, and through direct action. But before we get to our host, we want to do a rundown of today's, some of the day's uh, hot topics. We know that a lot of you are still reeling with the announcement earlier today that the Schumann Juvenile Detention Center is actually going to be closing next month. At first, there was an announcement that the state was pulling the certification from the center due to uh, multiple violations and ongoing issues around like safety um, and support. We learned that um, there was an issue of some of the youth going around unaccompanied. We know that there was the issue of an overdose. These are things that, of course, caused the great alarm and concern, not only to organizers and activists and parents, but the state. Um, for the, some of the next steps, unfortunately, we are waiting still to hear where the youth are going to be sent. There was an announcement that all of the youth who are currently in Juvenile, Juvenile Detention Center are going to be relocated to other facilities um, if they're not able to be placed in community care. So this is going to be an ongoing conversation and issue um, as well. Today was the first day of school for a lot of folks. And we know that with the return to school, especially in Pennsylvania, that also means a return to policing and incarceration for youth because in Pennsylvania, particularly in this Allegheny County region, a lot of the youth who are referred to the Schumann Juvenile Detention Center and juvenile uh, detention in general come from the schooling system. So we are very mindful that people are very afraid um, and have strong concerns about what some of the next steps are going to be when it comes to the juvenile detention center. Also, what's on a lot of people's minds today is the FDA did announce that they are going to approve the Pfizer vaccine for shot one and two and keep um, supporting as well for the booster shot for many people who have ex expressed vaccine hesitancy due to the fact that the FDA did not approve the vaccine. This is another stepping stone to hopefully get more people approved. There are still, you know, issues given the fact that this vaccine was approved after a year trial instead of the three years that traditional um, vaccines or FDA approvals usually go. However, given the emergency exception, there are people who have volunteered to be studied, volunteered to, to report, you know, any um, side effects and issues that they were having. And so the FDA was able to approve the vaccine. We still know that vaccine hesitancy is an issue for many people, whether it's because they can't get off work to take the vaccine, um, because they can't take off work to deal with the side effects, because they don't trust the government, because there's been a concerted misinformation, disinformation campaign, or for people who 
just for various reasons, do not take vaccines. We know that the lack of FDA approval had been a sticking point for a lot of folks and the argument to point to as why vaccines should not be mandated and why people should not be taking vaccines. And this is just one uh, hurdle that no longer exists for people who are pushing vaccines. Again, an uh, issue of concern and what we're going to see going forward is whether or not this is going to lead to vaccine mandates. A lot of arguments have been for the past um, few months is that government entities, especially schools, universities, prisons and jails cannot and should not mandate vaccines because the FDA did not approve them. However, now there's FDA approval, we sh should be seeing more uh, vaccine mandates for jobs in places of education and places of public accommodation. We did see the New York uh, state said that their teachers should get the vaccine and they did not actually uh, allow for an exemption. And that of course is going to create some legal precedents, because uh, traditionally people have been able to exempt from vaccines for religious reasons, medical reasons. And so we're going to see how that's going to play out in New York State. We know in places like Florida and Texas, uh, vaccine mandates as well as mask mandates have basically been banned by the leadership. And so there is going to be ongoing conversations and discussions about what that means. But um, one of the reasons for some good news, you know, there's been a lot going on in the, you know, the world and we're going to be talking about a lot of serious issues, but some things have been going on. One of the things you want to shout out the new Georgia project. I am actually wearing their shirt today um, because they, along with uh, plenty of other grassroots organizations in Georgia, um, spent the past, you know, three plus years dedicated to registering to vote and I report back this. Uh, past week said basically um, the majority of people in Georgia are now registered to vote so that even though there is ongoing issues around voter suppression um, and voter access, one hurdle has been uh, that has been almost alleviated is the hurdle of getting people registered to vote. It's been an ongoing debate in Georgia because of changing requirements an association with um, IDs and licenses that made it harder for people to register, harder for people to prove who they were, and the, of course the reduction in polling places. Again, there is um, action going on nationwide and this weekend in DC. There is the Good Trouble rally in March at the Lincoln Capitol um, as organizations like Until Freedom, the Black Voters Matter Fund, and others are joining to demand that the Biden administration pass the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Act that would actually protect the right to vote and give people positive rights when it comes to voting in elections, such as, you know, um, um, times for polling places to be open, how many polling places are going to be there, um, the the right to um, how long runoff elections are going to be, all type of things are happening. And so people are going to be in D.C. this weekend um, advocating for the right to vote. In addition, there is going to be a national uh, march to support, you know, the change in administration and to demand support, uh, actually, I should say, 
for Afghan refugees who are coming to the United States and different places, as well as condemn the way the Biden administration has handled, you know, the changeover of power in Afghanistan that's also happening in D.C. And later on, we're actually going to talk to two organizers who are um, instrumental in leading the Hands Off Afghanistan rally that's going to be happening in Minneapolis. But as been um, very heavily involved in the international conversation of supporting uh, refugees who are coming here, as well as talking about, you know, what happens when, you know, our policy and our state action dictates, you know, the subjugation and the destruction and the invasion of foreign countries. And so it's a very important conversation we're going to have later on in the hour. Additionally, like I said, today, you know, is the first day of school over the weekend. Organizations like Made It, PPS, gave hundreds of backpacks away um, to local students, gave free haircuts, free food, free back-to-school clothing. And so we do want to um, honor and love, uplift all the local organizations that are basically staying coming in and standing in the need to make sure that the uh, youth and the students are prepared um, and prepared and being able to be kept safe um, as we return to the school. And talking about uh, keeping people safe and uh, community organizing for education, our first guest comes from a newly established uh, Young Black Panther Party of Pittsburgh, um, and who's going to be talking about how they have been involved in the community. Some of the first events were um, actually doing some community drives for youth. And so we're very um, excited about that. We know for the past month and a half, a lot of PPS parents have been on edge trying to figure out when school is starting, what's going to be the next steps, what is going to be the safety plans, what is the vaccine mask uh, mandates or requirements to have, you know, teachers and students prepared and safe as they return to class. Hundreds of you showed up and gave comment to the local school board meeting that resulted in a week early start for um, the local Pittsburgh public schools. And to talk about what is happening on the uh, Pittsburgh public schools, why one of the largest school districts um, and one of the uh, most supported financially school districts are having such issues. It's going to be Alicia Pinsback Johnson from Black Women for Better Education, who's going to be talking about some of the groundwork that they have been doing to make sure that students have the opportunity to go to uh, public classrooms and public schools that are, are safe and provide culturally competent programming and curriculums for them, but especially in this time that COVID-19 is um, rising and what does that mean for the future and going forward, especially um, as we are trying to avoid another lockdown um, in this county. And as parents have said, they do not have the resources or the capacity um, to do uh, another year of in-home instruction. And then like we mentioned earlier, we're going to talk to two organizers who have been very involved in the Hands Off Afghanistan movement, um, Nasreen and Awash, who are coming uh, from Skin, etc., from uh, Minneapolis, to just talk about why some of the issues and policies have impacted so many people and it's causing them to call um, and to head up this rally this weekend. Like we said, there's a lot of issues going on and we want to look at 
what people are doing and how you can get involved um, and how you can support uh, these local organizers, no matter where you are. And so we're going to go ahead and get started with our program. And we're very excited to welcome uh, Chairperson Jabari uh, to the One Hood Power um, Hour platform. We're going to go ahead and bring him in as he's going to talk about the Young uh, Black Panther Party in Pittsburgh. How you doing? <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this evening. And I know, like you said, you know, you are one of the many youth who are going back to school right now. Um, how are you feeling and how is your institution uh, making you feel at this moment? Uh, at this moment, I feel pretty safe with it. Honestly, uh, we have a, a mask mandate in our school. You know, every time you're in a building, no matter what, wear a mask. Obviously, don't wear a mask if you're eating and drinking, but wear a mask. Um, even having a vaccination drive, I think, in about four or five days for the uh, Pfizer shot. So, I mean, I feel confident. Um, we evenly spaced out. And so far, I haven't seen too many people try to fight the mask mandate. Almost every student's wearing their mask. Every adult's wearing their mask. So, I mean, I feel confident in it. Um, like I mentioned at the beginning of the program, you, um, the Young Black uh, Panther Party Pittsburgh, you recently did hold a drive to like, you know, provide support and resources to youth. What caused you to do that? Uh, usually around this time of year is a struggle for parents to find school supplies. And well, especially in this COVID year where like all supplies of any kind are very strange to find. Uh, so me and our chairperson, Amani, decided like, well, we should hold an event where because most college students or people who just left high school have left all backpacks or pencils or notebooks and paper. So we decided to collect all that. We received monetary donations from the people and bought school supplies and had a little event in Algate Commons where we, I didn't keep track of how many people came through because that's not really the point. It was just passing out wherever school supplies were needed. Uh, we, I would say we nearly sold, like sold out all our supplies and like, 30 minutes to like an hour setting up. And we have some stragglers here and there, but usually it was definitely kids and especially parents saying, thank you, we actually need this. Thank you, I'm gonna spend money, I'll go out like. And you know, it was good to give back to the community that way. It wasn't our first event at the Algae and Commons, but in, I think this was like a definite bright spot for our events. I know, um, unfortunately, a lot of people were introduced to the Black Panther Party. I say reintroduced um, with you know, Judas and the Black Messiah that came out, um, you know, last year. But what is your organization? What caused you all to form this in, you know, um, in this region? And what are some of the things that you hope to accomplish? Well, we're just one chapter of the Young Black Panther Party. We try to distinguish ourselves from, you know, the Black Panthers. We get like we share a namesake, but the young part is pretty much focused on trying to involve more younger people. And by younger people, we mean like millennials, Gen Z, or, you know, people who just are not technically, I guess, boomers. You know, that's the that's why I try to screen myself with, because really, we're the young, the future of the country, especially our young Black youth. Uh, we are not seen or not really held to a standard of I'm trying to say of accountability sometimes, or even just credibility of like, oh, you guys don't want to do anything. You guys just want to play on your phones all the time. You guys don't care about the future, but that's not really the truth. A lot of us do care about the future. We, we want to be politically active. We want to give back to our community. But in these times of COVID and just social anxiety, 
people do not know how to. So our main base is in Michigan. Um, he pretty much started a way to like empower black people, black liberation. And there's other chapters like around the United States, one in Ohio, literally right next to us. Uh, our chapter is the Pittsburgh and Southwest chapter. Uh, we only really want to represent that section of Pennsylvania, mainly because I, we do not live anywhere near Philly, you know, because Philly from us is six hours and I cannot tell you what people in Philly feel about, you know, things and situation in their city. But I can definitely tell you what's, what's going on in Pittsburgh, at least southwestern Pittsburgh. Um, basically, we just want to have a way to build a black community in that area, especially within the city, and just have a way for people to feel welcomed. And we're very focused on inclusion. So, yeah, we like um, pretty much me and Amani are both members of the LGBT community. Most of our members are women or AFAB, if you go by that term. Um, we just want to focus on if you are a person of color, ADOS, African-American, Pan-African, you would consider yourself one of us, one of that ter um, titles, you would feel welcome in our group and hopefully you would like to, you know, spread education, you know, community acceptance amongst the city. And so what are some of your goals for, you know, the future? I know you said you want a lot of, uh, of diverse, young, active millennials to get involved. Um, we're going to put in the chat, you know, your link trees so people can get involved. But what are some of the goals that you have um, in this upcoming year? I would say some of the goals we are focusing on is most likely outreach to try and get our name out there. Obviously, we want to reach more young people, not just millennials, you know, maybe the older millennials, maybe the younger millennials, but we kind of really do want to focus on Gen Z because we, if the election shows anything, that Gen, Gen Z could swing a whole election, um, especially with our black women. Um, we really want to focus on younger people. The youngest we could actually recruit in our organization as a whole is 16. Um, but we can go as older, I guess, as many as you, like 40 or something, because like we're still considering you younger. You're not a part of the boomer generation. Um, but yeah, we just want to focus on more young people who want to feel heard, who want to get back to the community, who've experienced the wrong and the damage of older communities, like at least, I, at least our community, that, like the homophobia, the, the analyzed racism, the misogynoir, the misogyny. I mean, Come on, like I, even for me, I used to be a kid who considered to be an Oreo because I love professional wrestling, I love rock music, and I, you know, wasn't considered to be black because of the interests I had. Um, and I think, especially with this organization, it was being pro-black and learning my um, heritage and learning the history of the Black Panthers, it made me, not made me, but had me a way to learn that you being black is more than a stereotype. You being black is more than what you, black means in your car or what clothes you wear or what religion you are, what region you are in the country. Um, being black is not a monolith. You are black if you're, you know, African-American or you're half African-American, you're, you're African-American. You have African-American blood, you are black, point blank and simple. And, you know, it's just, we want to incorporate a lot of people, so our focus is mainly on just outreach and just trying to connect to people and make a connection to people community, especially young people. Mm -hmm. And you talked a little bit about, you know, what led you to join the organization and, you know, um, finding, you know, solidarity and identity and reaching out to people, you know, along the diaspora. 
What has been for you one of the um, best things about joining uh, the Young Black you know, Panther Party? And what do you want other people to know about your organization? Uh, I think the best thing I've found about is this community, because it's obviously us national leaders. Um, within us, I feel like it's not hard to find, it's kind of hard to find other young, emphasis on the young part, Black people who are very much in like in tune with politics. Um, as much as you want to say politics isn't real alive, unfortunately, for people who are descendants of slavery or descendants of discrimination, politics airs our lives. Every piece of legislation that goes through, every policy that's even announced could affect our way of living on any given day. Um, it's hard it's it's nice to find that community and talk more and be focused on pro-black issues that just generally it's just a great space to find people who are not, you know, are, but who are pro-LGBTQ, you know, pro-Black liberation, who are, want to just build people up no matter who you identify as, what your name is, and not so straw picky or like, oh, you don't like this, or you don't dress like that, so you ain't Black. It's more like you are Black and you have an opinion, so what's your opinion? That's what I like about the group so far. Um, now, hopefully we can carry that message and that acceptance across all the chapters. And what I want people to know about our chapter, basically, at least the organization in general, is that we are severely like nonprofit. No one's making money off this. It's like completely volunteer. We just want a way for our, um, our community in Pittsburgh, especially, to feel like someone cares, someone, you know, frankly, wants to help you, wants to give back to you, and is there for you. It's just Basically, we want to have your bag. Hopefully, you have ours. You know, no matter what you identify as, or the stories you go to, or you may feel like, oh, I'm not black enough. It's like, no, you are black enough. You are black. There's no such thing as black enough. Um, so it's just, as much as you feel like you're accepted here, hopefully, you feel like you have a way to reach out to people who are most likely like-minded. Yeah, thank you for that. And um, as we wrap up, how do people get in contact with you? How, how do they follow you? Again, we've posted your link tree, but for people who may be driving or just listening, you know, um, you know, can't run to the computer right now, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, we have, we, our main two sources of information are, you know, it's Instagram, obviously, the Young, young Black Panther Party, underscore Pittsburgh. Uh, you can also probably find us in by our bigger chapter because our main chapter yes is all listed and also on twitter as tybb you know underscore pittsburgh uh also by link tree we try to fly around pittsburgh so you may see our qr codes around certain places posters uh we will probably most likely also have another event a community event in the future in september so you may see us there um i wouldn't say tiktok too much because tiktok doesn't seem to like black careers too often and yeah it's just it's just how it is but we will try to get out to you as far as possible. But if you just simply typed in Young Black Party, you probably find one of our chapters in your state or your area, and you'll see Pittsburgh right there. So, All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Chairperson. And good and good luck to you in college. Please stay safe. Um, and we wish you all the best with your organization um, and your future educational endeavors. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. And again, that was Chairperson Jabari from the uh, newly created uh, Young Black Panther Party of Pittsburgh, um, who uh, was just talking about the organization, how you can get involved. 
And keeping on the subject of education, we know for so many parents this past summer, this past year has been a roller coaster uh, to say the least. And, you know, just trying to figure out when your children are going back to school, what are the support and resources um, has caused a lot of uh, stress and, and questions. And one organization that has kind of taken the education field by storm has been Black Women for Better Education, which are a group of concerned you know, mothers and community members who got together and really began to push for change when it comes to education, uh, particularly in Pittsburgh, up in Pennsylvania. And one of the organizers are joining us tonight, um, uh, Alice uh, Pinchback Johnson from Black Women for Better Education is going to be joining us to talk about what has been going on for these past couple of, of weeks. What do we need to know um, for the September 3rd um, opening date and how we can get involved? And so we're going to welcome her to the program now. Hi, Miracle. Hello, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you today? We're making it. We're making it. And so we have not received any more announcements about a delaying of a start date. But when it comes to the start of PPS, can you just catch us up to speed about what you know um, and what parents should be what, what parents should know about starting um, on the third? Sure. So um, we know there's been a lot of, of changes in the past couple of weeks. So school calendar was approved back in March or so uh, with an August 25th start date. And then a couple of weeks ago, there was a, an announcement made to the media about a September 8th start date, which kind of spawned um, protests and a lot of um, testifying at the public hearing. And um, where the district landed last week at the special legislative hearing was that um, school would be starting on September 3rd. And so that's where we are right now. Um, there's still um, an outstanding issue around the start times. Uh, the district is trying to move towards a tiered system where there are some 7.15 start times, I think some 8.25 and then some 9.10. And that is supposed to be to offset some of the issues with the transportation shortage. Uh, that is gonna be voted on at the legislative hearing um, this Wednesday. Um, it is apparently tied into the um, teaching contract, the Pittsburgh Federation of Teacher, the teacher union contract. And I think the ratification of that is happening as we speak. I think something's coming out about them ratifying today and then the board will be able to vote for it or against it um, on the 25th, uh, this Wednesday at the legislative hearing. Um, so that's where we are um, with start times and the start of school. Um, I know folks have um, also just been trying to navigate the issues around transportation. Walk zones have been increased. So students who may have typically uh, been offered bus service in the past are now um, considered to be walking students. And then also there have been quite a few students in middle schools and other um, areas who are now um, being given Port Authority transportation and will need to take Port Authority. And we know there's been a lot of concern about families just feeling like that is not a viable option for their students for a lot of reasons. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll see. Um, 
And then, of course, all of this is happening um, as we're navigating rising COVID numbers. Um, we've seen around the country, there have been schools that um, have gone um, closed or, or have temporary clo temporarily closed or students who had have, have to quarantine in large numbers. And so all of those things are, are happening um, as well. So just, just a lot. Um, I, I am a parent. Um, I'm not the parent of a school age child in Pittsburgh Public School. I do have stepdaughters in other districts. Um, some of which have started back already, some which are starting very soon. Um, and just so concerned, um, I also, at my, my stepdaughters go to districts where there are mask optional policies. And so, of course, that's concerning for me um, as a stepmom. Pittsburgh Public Schools does have a mask required policy, um, I think, which is a step in the right direction. Um, but a lot of things on the minds of, of families right now um, as it relates to just the start of school. Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about what information has been passed out, particularly around this Pittsburgh uh, Port you know, Authority uh, partnership, because um, it was released in a tweet, right? There was a tweet sent out and said, hey, we're very excited to work with PPS about this, but there's not a media report and a lot of parents didn't know about it. Um, and with that, can you also talk about what it's like for some of your 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 parents to learn things through the media and what has been the communication between the school board and the community at large? Yeah, uh, it, it's been tough. <laughs> communication, I think, has been an area of growth for the district for a very long time. And so even with the announcement with the school start date, um, the justification is, well, the media has a larger reach. And so we wanted to use the media as a platform. And then I know it was followed up with some robocalls and some other um, literature. I think some people have gotten some things in the mail, uh, but some of the things that have come in the mail had the September 8th start date. And we know that was changing. So just a lot of, of fusion um, around the transportation, even with Port Authority. I know that there was an initiative around getting parents um, um, tickets or a bus pass to, to ride along with students. But, you know, is that for the whole year? Is it for a couple of days? You know, how does that work? Then there's also a release your seat initiative where families who can give up their seat on, on one of the yellow buses can be reimbursed. Um, but apparently there are some caveats around there. So a lot of just confusion uh, for folks, um, information coming from a lot of different places, whether it be social media, whether it be in the media, whether it be um, in superintendent updates, it just feels like, like things are, are all over the place. And so even on any given topic, like depending on where you're looking or who you're talking to, there's confusion. And some people are saying some things, some people are saying other things. And so just, you know, the, the need for just direct, clear, timely, concise communication continues to be an issue in the district. And, you know, it's not necessarily the fact that things have to change. We have been living in a changing society, at least for the past 18 months. Some of us, of course, much longer than that as things just continue to change. Uh, but it is just about um, the ability to, to have some foresight, uh, we knew that the transportation was an issue um, at the end of last school year. And even before that, the district's been audited over transportation before in some of the issues. Um, and, you know, waiting two weeks before the school year starts um, is difficult. 
you know, we, there were families that testified like, hey, it might just be eight days to you, but that's eight days that I can't work. Um, I know that the out of school time partners who have been instrumental in really stepping in um, to educate kids and, and to do the learning hubs last year, you know, have been asked to step in again and, and be the ones who are going to try to offset that. And that is definitely and absolutely appreciated. But these folks, of course, they're overextended. Um, you know, they're at the, the end of their budgets. They, they're over budget in a lot of ways. And, and yes, the district is offering, you know, a stipend, you know, for kids to, you know, to be able to attend some of these programs. But just think about it. You've been doing school all year. You've done a summer program. You think you have a few weeks to recoup because school's getting ready to start and programs may wait until mid to late September or October to kick off. But it's like, no, please come back and help us for these eight days, because for whatever reason, we didn't have foresight to be ready to start school on the 25th. And so it, it's just, it's very tough. Um, and it really is taxing on the community uh, for all of these things to just be changing and to feel like the district is just always a day late and a dollar short when it comes to communication and when it comes to, to planning. And, and I know um, some other community organizations have raised issues about, you know, information also not being translated properly. So for, um, you know, we have a lot of a, a resettled population within the Pittsburgh public, you know, schools in the Allegheny area. And so people are also talking about not only is there misinformation, for some families, there's no information because uh, there haven't been translators and there haven't been there hasn't been information uh, put out. So that is another thing. And so your organization or the organization you're affiliated with, um, Black Women for Better Education, really has been. Um, at the forefront, you know, have said, you know what, enough is enough. Um, and, and, you know, and to the, the good of some and the chagrin of others have really, like, really been out there. And so what is what are y'all's take on everything that's happening? What are some of your, like, your next steps uh, to, like, kind of get, you know, more things put in place in a timely manner for these students? Absolutely. I mean, I think for us, um, you know, while we did get started um, in May of 2020, so last year, and it really was at first um, directly in response to what was happening with the pandemic. And so hearing about families like, well, what's going to happen? You know, March 13th was the last day of in-person instruction. Um, you know, in some schools and other districts around the county, there was no loss in learning. Students have access to technology. So they're like, okay, we're going Google Classroom and, you know, we'll see you all, you know, maybe in a couple of days, maybe they had one or two days where teachers had to kind of get it set up and then they're getting ready to go. You know, with, with PPS, you know, it wasn't a one-to-one -one district. And I think it has been said, oh, that wasn't even in our five-year plan to be a one-to-one -one district. It's 2021. There's really not many jobs or things that are happening where students should not have access to technology and that should not be a part of their educational experience. But, you know, even just the getting laptops to families, dealing with connectivity issues. I mean, just a lot of frustration around just how that played out. Then there was the whole debacle with packets and, oh, we're going to mail it or go pick it up or this isn't the right one. And then boxes of packets sitting in the professional development center. And so families really feeling like there was uh, some loss um, of learning. And so for us, I mean, it's really about just helping to um, educate the community about what's happening, letting them know that as taxpayers, they, they have a right to speak up. They have a right to cast their vote. 
uh, school board is an elected position. It is a representative government, meaning that the folks who sit in those positions are supposed to represent the voices and the interests of the people who elect them and in the districts in which they serve. And if you feel like your people are not uh, listening to you and you're not being heard, then you have the right to vote for new ones. And so in addition to the education piece of our work, we started a political action committee because we didn't feel like we were being heard. And so we did run a slate of school board candidates in the uh, May primary, uh, three of which won the Democratic nomination and uh, will hopefully prevail in the general election in November. And uh, we also know that it's bigger than just school board. Um, there is a need for all elected officials, for the entire government to be working um, together and in concert to benefit children. And so what does that mean um, with a new mayor coming? What does that mean with city council, with county council, with state representatives? Everyone has a role to play. And so, you know, our PAC will be continuing to um, expand and look to support candidates who will speak unapologetically about education. Um, we're also very uh, much concerned about capacity building. And so, folks who want to lead in education, whether that be folks that just want to speak up or start uh, groups or, or do that type of work, or folks who are, are looking to run for school board. You know, we ran a learning institute um, last summer um, for our um, some of the people who went on to run for school board and then for other folks who were just generally interested. We're looking to run another learning institute to just bring that knowledge and information base to, um, to folks who are interested and folks that want to really delve into this work. And so um, those are some things that, that you'll see um, on that education, capacity building, communication side, um, and then really just allowing people to to really just express themselves in the way that that they want to, um, you know, a lot of the the protests that that was not organized by Black Women for a Better Education um, were folks in touch with us. Absolutely, did we promote it? Absolutely, because you know it is our belief that anybody who wants to have a voice in public education on behalf of their kids or just on behalf of children in general should. And, and if we can support folks in doing that, we absolutely want to do that. And so, you know, we've wanted to do it from um, a place of facts, a place of, of data. We, we've uh, put out four publications about things that have happened in the district, looking at the history over the past 15 years, taking our own um, our own take on reimagining PPS and what it would look like to make some bold moves there. Uh, we've talked about um, the need for new tactics. So we know that we stand on the shoulders of giants. The district is getting ready to, and I don't want to use the word celebrate because it's nothing to celebrate, but at the 30-year anniversary of when the advocates for African-American students filed a lawsuit back in 1992 um, because the district was not educating kids at high levels. They're 30 years, and it's just a renewal Every five years or so with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, the district, and now the equity advisory panel that represents the work and still contains some of those original advocates, but 30 years of that. And so we talk a little bit about that and the need to really build on those tactics. And then the final publication is really just breaking down by role group our recommendations for doing that work. And so we want to continue to educate. We want to continue to mobilize on that education side of the house. And then on the political side of the house, we definitely want to encourage folks who are bold about education to run for office, whether it be school board or otherwise.
Perfect. And um, as we wrap up, how do people get in contact with you all? Um, what are the requirements, I guess, also to get involved with your organization? And um, when, are, when are your next meetings or anything like that you like to share? So um, go to our website, uh, blackwomenforabettereducation.com or for short, BW, the number four, BE.com. Um, and so you can do that. We're also on Facebook. If you just look up Black Women for a Better Education, um, we try to keep that updated. We're always posting articles. We're pointing people towards ways that they can testify at public hearings, uh, things that are happening in the district. Um, in terms of meetings, uh, we don't necessarily have um, a set meeting schedule. Uh, some of the things that, that we do are um, uh, more kind of reactive to some of the issues. Um, and so, you know, for example, we had a forum last week because there was a lot of just uh, conversation around um, what was happening in some of the conversations and, and the decisions that the district was making. And so we had a forum. Um, we are looking to, to do some more consistent monthly town halls. And so just having folks come on and be able to um, have conversations and really elevate those issues. So that'll probably be happening um, later this fall and early spring, uh, the Learning Institute. Um, and then just, you know, feel free to, to send us a message um, if there's something that you're thinking about or things that you want us to elevate. We're always happy to collaborate with folks. Um, this is a group effort. Um, you know, I'm the, the face of this particular conversation right now, but I'm not in any means the face of Black Women for a Better Education. It is a collective of Black women and has also expanded beyond Black women to other people who are just concerned about the state of education in Pittsburgh. And so we are open um, to just hearing from folks. Um, you know, if, if you do have it within your pockets to donate, you know, you're able to do that via the website as well. If you want to become a member of our political action committee and have some say in the folks that we endorse uh, for school board and other elected official um, positions, you have the ability to do that as well. Great. And thank you um, so much. Uh, for taking the time out. I know, like you said, these, these next 72 hours for you and your organization are going to be um, a lot. So I do wish you and other parents, you know, well, I know it's a really stressful situation. I do hope you have your, your babies have a good first week um, and they have like really exciting, fun stories to tell you. And um, always, you're always welcome back on the show. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, and again, like we said, we know it's a lot going on, but we again, there are ways, no matter what's going on, um, there's always people who are, are involved and are trying to do the best they can to respond, to organize and to galvanize, you know, people and there's different, there's different, you know, ways that people have done that, whether it's running candidates, doing mutual aid, getting people involved, you know, and there's also a uh, direct action. And so we want to bring on our, our next two guests, um, Nasreen and Arash from Minneapolis, um, who are going to be talking about their hands off Afghanistan um, rally that they are um some of the lead organizers on that's happening this weekend. There, I do believe there is a companion rally going on in DC as well. And so we just want to uh, bring them on to uh, talk about, you know, how we're able to support, you know, Afghan refugees at this time. But also, this is something that's been going on, unfortunately, for a long time. And so I know, you know, you, Aswash, have been organizing um, for Afghan families for almost two decades. So in a roundabout way, like, how did we get here? Go ahead. Well, that's a big question. Um, 
I mean, it all boils down to U.S. imperialism, really. The uh, U.S. has been involved in Afghanistan since the 50s, but really been involved in funding different groups in Afghanistan since the late 70s. Um, in the late 70s, there was a push by a number of leftists in Afghanistan to create a more of a communist socialist government in Afghanistan. Uh, they did that. Uh, by that time, the U.S. saw an opportunity to uh, create a, a Russian-style Vietnam, basically, to get Russia stuck in a country for a long time where they would lose a lot of money, um, also make them seem like they are you know, warmongers going and occupying the country. So when the leftist uh, government of Afghanistan took over in 1978, uh, they had power for about a year and a half or so. Uh, and at that time, the U.S. started funding uh, different groups to overthrow that uh, you know, communist government of Afghanistan. So the communist government uh, at that point felt like it had no choice but to ask the Soviets, the Russians, to come in and help them out. So it basically became a proxy war between the two superpowers, the Russians, the Soviets at that time, and the U.S. And they used the Afghans as pawns in their proxy wars. Uh, and ever since then, that's, just, that's been basically what's been going on in Afghanistan. It's been proxy wars between different superpowers uh, to use Afghanistan for you know, their benefits. Uh, there's also a lot of resources, minerals, uh, lithium, uh, in Afghanistan that have been found in the past uh, 15 years or so that the U.S. has been trying to extract uh, and obviously make a lot of money off of. Um, as people know, most of the world's opium also comes from Afghanistan. Around 90% of the world's opium comes from there, and most of that is sold to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, so the pharmaceutical industry benefits from it greatly as well. So, you know, it's also a strategic place. If you look at the world map, Afghanistan is right next to China on one side, Iran on the other side, Russia to the north of it, and in Pakistan, India to the south of it. So strategically, it's a really important country as well. If you have placement in Afghanistan, that means you're keeping an eye out on China, you're keeping an eye out on Iran, you're keeping an eye out on, on Russia, and you're able to tell them, like, hey, we're watching you. Uh, so for the U.S., it's a really important place. That's the main, those are the main reasons they were, they've been in Afghanistan for the past 20 years. Um, and the unfortunate thing about uh, this whole situation is that the people don't really know. You know, the U.S. went in there kind of, you know, creating this narrative of we're there to save the poor, helpless Afghan woman. Because these, you know, dark, savage brown men are there to suppress them. Uh, not mentioning that these, the Taliban, these dark, savage brown men, the Taliban were created because of U.S. imperialism. Uh, it was a backlash to U.S. imperialism. Uh, and also they were created to fight the Russians, obviously. Uh, uh, so it's, there's a lot of misinformation. Uh, there's, there's, when people don't really know what's going on, I want to they really don't understand who the players are. Why has the U.S. been there for over 20 years now? Uh, you know, was it really just to be there and save the poor, helpless Afghan woman? Or is there more reasons? And I think the media has done a great job of uh, spreading misinformation and are just not giving enough information about it. So I think what, what's going on, with, you know, what's, uh, what's happening in Afghanistan recently with the U.S. pulling out suddenly and then Taliban taking over, uh, a lot of us are just have had enough, you know. A lot of us are like, we need to, we need to start getting the word out. I mean, obviously the government is going to do what they're going to do. The warmongers are going to do what they're going to do. Maybe what we can do is at least spread some awareness. Uh, to everyday folks and see if we can get at least some public uh, attention towards it where they can sway 
uh, these politicians one way or the other. Thank you for that. And part of that awareness is the rally this weekend, um, the Hands Off Afghanistan. Uh, now, Serena, can you talk a little bit about what the rally is um, and what you hope to accomplish on Saturday? Well, so the rally was created because um, uh, one of my girlfriends and I um, have done some organizing to try to bring together the Afghan community in Minnesota because um, it's kind of a spread out, smaller community. Um, and so we had been some, doing some organizing and people kept reaching out to us asking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And um, we had seen that there are global pro protests. There are protests all over the world on August 28th. Um, these protests were organized before the Taliban had taken Kabul. Um, and so now we have changed direction because it's not much of a protest now it's a rally um, to try to bring more awareness and we're also planning a vigil as well um, just because we need some healing the community needs healing the diaspora is hurting pretty bad right now and people are very desperate to get their families out of Afghanistan right now they're very everyone's really hurt this like erasure of our existence that's happening right before our eyes is is really terrifying to experience. Um, and I know we're not the first community to experience this. And I know that like trying to stop the US from doing what the US wants to do to hurt black and brown people is feels pretty impossible most of the time. But if we can at least bring awareness and get more people educated on what's going on, maybe we can stop the US from doing this to the next group of people. Um, and so, yeah. That's where it came from. And I know um, you've been very involved like you said, in uniting, you know, the African community, but also advocating for people who are going to be uh, resettled here. What are some of the demands that you have of your local government, the state department, when it comes to um, assisting folks um, who are trying to flee? We are asking governments to accept refugees. Um, as many refugees as possible. Um, there are millions of people right now that are scared, that are um, afraid for their lives, especially many that supported the U.S., not knowing what they were supporting, or um, women that were working, women that were in positions of power that are afraid now, that want to get out. Um, there are specific ethnic groups that are being targeted by the Taliban, the Azara community specifically, other religious groups, the Sikhs, the Hindus, the queer community. There's many people right now that are very afraid for their lives. Um, and so we're asking that the governments, that the, the, the Western world open up their borders to these refugees because this war benefits all of them. Um, and they all had a hand in playing this game. And so they need to, they need to clean it up. And then, um, all right, she talked about a little bit earlier now, and, and um, if you can go deeper into it, there has been a lot of people, you know, who did say at the very onslaught, you know, what about the women and girls? What about like all, you know, these these people that the America need, the soldiers need to go in and save? And can you just talk a little bit about why that framing is problematic and why that continues like the imperialism and the colonialism um, for Western powers? Yeah, there's so many layers to that. I mean, one, it's white savior, saviorism. You know, again, white white men going into where, you know, black and brown bodies are. 
uh, telling them what's how they should live and uh, you know playing the savior complex. But the thing is, they've been playing the savior complex for the past 20 years on Afghanistan with women, you know, with, with that narrative. But if you actually look at what's go, what's been happening in Afghanistan past 20 years, the situation for women has haven't really gone much better. Hasn't gone much better. Except yes, in Kabul. In Kabul, in the big city, there have been more opportunities for, for some women to get certain type of jobs, uh, get some more opportunities, go to school. But if you look at the situation outside of Kabul, which is you know the, the capital, it's been it's been similar, you know, uh, and it hasn't changed. Uh, and the the truth is, when the, U, the U.S. I mean, if you look at it historically, wherever the U.S. has gone to occupy, uh, they created a certain type of narrative. But the reality is, they've gone there for different reasons. Uh, it wasn't for a benevolent reason. They were they were they're in Afghanistan for 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 what they can get out of the resources, uh, for the pipeline that's coming from the sea into uh, into Turkey and Ukraine and Europe, uh, for the opium, uh, you know, for like I just mentioned all the minerals and also for the strategic placement of you know having the U.S. military there. So th- those are the reasons that U.S. has been there, and they've played false narrative, and they fooled people. And I don't. I don't think it's a false narrative. I think what they did was weaponized what was happening to the women to give themselves to sell an excuse to go and do more to create more violence against the Afghan community. It the weaponizing of what was happening to Afghan women um, was used as, as an excuse. Ultimately, they had no there was no desire to help the Afghan women. There may have been NGOs that went in to do that work, but that wasn't the U.S. government. Hundred percent agree. And you talk about, you know, your desire to make sure that this doesn't happen again. And you know, we're the world, you know, Tigray, Palestine. You know, we know the whole world is in, you know, this this violent conflict. Why is it so important that people pay attention to this language to avoid, you know? having these situations be supported at home because you know uh, one of my professors used to say Americans love war because war has never been our experience right and so it's very easy to sit there and say okay we're going to go abroad and do these things um, because we never experienced it so we can fall you know we're very uh, this propaganda so why is it very important that we pay attention that we talk to people from regions who are impacted and that we demand from our state's leaders to not support and fund these wars and invasions? Uh, I mean, I think because this keeps happening over and over again. You know, this, it's, if, if, there's always a boogeyman that we go and have to go in and uh, save or, I don't know, uh, whatever we have to do, we have to we always create an excuse. And as though... But it's usually, if you look into it, it's always you know similar narratives that keep playing out in history over and over again. And I think if you start paying attention to these things, you realize it's pretty much on repeat, you know. Um, and it's always to really to go and extract resources and uh, you know to get something out of it for ourselves and for capitalism. For capitalism, mostly, yeah. For capitalism, for imperialism. Uh, but you know, the people that really benefit from all this are not really okay. People are getting the lithium for their phones, so everyday people do actually benefit in a way, I guess. But in a, while, you, while you're getting your lithium from your phone, there's thousands, sometimes millions of people dying for those resources. Uh, so just so we can have, you know, 
fancier phones, I guess. But the people that are really benefiting from this are the, you know, the, the companies that benefit from war. Uh, you know, the U.S. plays both sides in a lot of conflicts. Uh, for instance, the U.S. pays Pakistan around $5 billion a year uh, to fund their uh, organization called ISI, which is similar to CIA. It's their secret service. Um, and they also obviously were funding the Afghan government at the same time. The ISI was giving was taking most of that five million dollars and giving it right back to the Taliban. So the Taliban, that's where the Taliban get most of their funding from from the ISI. So the US knew exactly where the money was going, obviously. US the intelligence affairs service in the US knows it knows everything, obviously. So you know, they're playing both sides to create instability in Afghanistan. And throughout instability, that instability allowed them and gave them an excuse to stay in Afghanistan besides saving the poor, helpless woman. It was also, hey, look at this Afghanistan. These Taliban are over there. We have to stay over here. We have to, you know, keep our military over here. But after a certain point, the U.S. realized that, um, that it was losing too much money by keeping the military over there. So now what they want to do is they put their mercenaries. So all these private companies that, you know, are extracting the minerals that have the pipeline going through, um, now they have private mercenaries that cost a lot less for them to keep in Afghanistan. And they've made backdoor deals with the Taliban to allow them to stay there. Well, you know, the Taliban get a kickback, obviously, from everything that the U.S. extracts. Not just the U.S., also other multinational companies that are throughout the world. Um, they, you know, they extract minerals, but and then they, the, the, the private militaries stay there to protect those companies that, uh, that will extract those minerals. I also disagree with the Americans don't like war because they've not experienced it because I feel like the black community and the indigenous communities in the U.S. have definitely and still live in a war. Um, Same with our brothers and sisters south of us. Like this is not new. This is the same thing the U.S. did to them. Um, And so I don't agree with that statement, but um, I'm hoping that we find ways of uniting as communities in the pain that we've experienced through this and come together and become stronger. Yes, thank you so much for that reminder. And as we wrap, how can people get in contact with your organization? How can they support you? Um, and how can they get uh, uh, more involved in your work going forward? Um, they, we created an Instagram because a lot of people are asking how to support the refugees. And right now we're still trying to get into contact with um, the location that they're going to be dropped off at. Um, but if you follow um, at Hands Off Afghanistan on Instagram, um, we are going to be posting updates on there. And we do have someone in our local community that is collecting funds and is collecting um, donations, uh, material things that someone would need if they're coming here. So um, all that information is on the Instagram page. All right. Well, I do thank you both for taking the time out to talk with us. Please keep in contact with us. And if there's anything that you need, um, um, please just do not hesitate to reach out. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And again, we want to thank you all for joining us today for this episode of the One Power Hour. Over the past you know, year, we've talked about situations in Tigray, situations in Colombia, situations in Palestine, you know, situations of conflict across 
in the world. And there's been this reoccurring theme of like imperialism and colonialism and white supremacy. I think it's very, very, very important um, as we, we move forward and we talk about this ever-changing, ever-growing society and the times of COVID-19 where we are, you know, more you know, politically and civically aware and engaged that we actually take this knowledge and demand, you know, more. And part of that is, you know, supporting like anti-war movements, supporting, you know, the lack of invasion, the lack of military prowess, but also making sure we're supporting communities, making sure we're not giving fodder and pretext to further harm and violence. It's very important. So we do want to thank uh, Nasreen and Awash for joining us this evening. We want to thank you for, you know, turning into the One Hood Power Hour and to remind you, there's a lot of stuff, you know, coming up for um, our shows. If this is the first time tuning in, we have programming um, constantly to try to engage and inform. Tomorrow, we have What Black Pittsburgh Needs to Know. It's going to be on our One Hood channels um, at two o'clock, just talking about a lot of issues. Um, on Wednesday, we have This Week in White Supremacy as a conversation uh, for uh, our podcast um, that we do Wednesdays at 6 p.m. And we're, we talk about white supremacy as a thing that happens, but as a, a thing that we can actually fight and, and organize against. On Thursday, we have On Tilt, you know, um, where we talk about the state of black mental health. Um, it's Thursday at noon and, you know, you know our hosts, you know, Julius Boatwright of Still Smiling and, and Mama Brown, you know, talk about ways to you know, support your mental health um, in, in ways that we can just keep each other safe and ourselves safe at this time. Also, at One Hit Power, we have heard the call. You've asked us to get involved, to do education, to do a lot. So we have a lot of events coming up your way. Labor Day weekend, we actually have a campaign kickoff event that's going to be um, at the Entry Garden in Highland Park. Um, this campaign kickoff launch is where you can actually come and meet a lot of candidates who are running. We have judges, we have county council, we have people, you know, we have sheriffs, we have a lot of people running for office. We have mayors, you know, coming through. We've invited folks to come out to meet y'all. So please come through. This will also be streamed online. We understand with COVID-19, we want to make sure people, you know, are safe. So please wear your mask. Uh, please, you know, socially distance. But also for those who don't feel comfortable coming out, for our speakers, our speaker portion is going to be live streamed. In addition, uh, to keep on the conversation about, you know, electoral politics, we are um, actually going to have um, a series of candidate forums um, starting next month. We're very excited. We have our statewide candidate fall forum that's going to be um, live streamed and in person, given the um the rise in COVID cases, a lot of stuff is going to be um, on our live, but we do have a studio space where we're going to have people like come and socially distance and ask questions because, you know, we believe for like black and brown people who believe in electoral politics, we should have the right to question and, and to question authentically uh, people who are running and, and uh, demanding our vote. Um, in addition, we talked a lot and I, um, I'm not sure if we've been able to pull this flyer up 
Prince Vincent Lake. Um, on Sunday at two o'clock, I'm hosting a conversation called TGIF, a conversation on how tear gas harms our community and how less lethal munitions are not actually less lethal with Quinn Cozens, Will Sands, and Mahaba Khabib, um, who is actually a lawyer and organizer um, from Palestine, who is going to uh, be joining us. We know that our local council has, our county council actually approved, you know, uh, support for um, these less lethal munitions. And um, one of the caveats to getting rid of uh, a mandatory or uh, permissible solitary confinement at Allegheny County Jail, um, the warden has asked for training for these uh, less lethal munitions um, for his staff. And so we want to talk about how these aren't actually um, less lethal. People have been uh, killed, been, been maimed, hospitalized, and permanently disabled due to uh, these devices. And some of these devices, especially with tear gas, are actually manufactured right here in Pennsylvania. And so we want to have a con an international conversation about why this is a very problematic for um, our, our communities um, at home and abroad. And so we invite you to tune in again. And then lastly, like I said, there is a national call, a rally, a clarion call for people to get in good trouble this weekend. Um, so this weekend, there is a rally at the Lincoln Memorial um, for people to get involved, to come out to D.C. So if you want to take a day trip um, out to D.C. or if you want to come in more, uh, earlier, um, there is going to be uh, a rally this weekend. So we do want people to get involved. And lastly, again, thank you so much. If you are a Pennsylvania resident, please be reminded, October 18th is the last day to vote. Um, if you have more questions, you want to get involved or even donate to um, the Wanted Power Hour um, as we are a C4, um, you can go on my like website, wantedpower.org. We have launched, we officially have a website um, to go online to donate, to get uh, involved, to volunteer. So again, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I am signing off on behalf of the Wanted Power team. We'll see you next Monday at 7 p.m. as we talk to, as we are going to have a conversation about paid sick leave. Thank you all for tuning in. Hope you have a wonderful night.